Uh, please just receive affection, if you would, from all of our family of churches. And also, if you would open your Bibles to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 9, we are going through a series in Acts in our church. And this was just a delightful passage. I know it's a familiar one, but it's worth returning to. I'm sure many of you have heard sermons preached on this passage, have studied it yourselves, but it's worth going back to. Actually, this story is told three times in the book of Acts. I think because Luke and probably Paul, influencing Luke, thought it was so valuable for the church, so necessary for our edification, for our upbuilding. And so they they tell this story three different times over a relatively short uh, book. So we're going to read the first 31 verses. I'm just read it straight through somewhat quickly to not take too much time up. And then we'll look at the story and then I'll I'll finalize with some application. So verse 1 of Acts chapter 9. Lord, bless the reading and preaching of your word. But Saul still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogue at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately... Something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. For some days, he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. 
When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. When he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. And they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. Barnabas took him. And brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him. And how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists. But they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace. And was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. August Frederick Jager, not a name many people would know, was a German official in the Nazi era of Germany. To create the context for his work on behalf of his party, it's important to remember that documents used in evidence at the Nuremberg trials concluded that the Nazis had planned to de-Christianize Germany. A report entitled, The Nazi Master Plan, The Persecution of Christian Churches, prepared by the Office of Strategic Services, says, important leaders of the National Socialist Party would have liked the complete extirpation of Christianity and the substitution of a purely racial religion. The report stated that the best evidence for the existence of an anti-church plan was to be found in the systematic nature of the persecution of Germany's churches. Jager was an official of this era. And of course, this plan was extended beyond Germany. In the Reichsgau Wartland, the Polish areas annexed by Nazi Germany, Jager served as an administrative chief to the regional leader, Arthur Greiser. Earlier, Jager had led the effort at Nazification of the evangelical church in Prussia. In Poland, he earned the nickname Kirchen Jager, the church hunter, for the vehemence of his hostility to the Catholic Church. The church hunter was unleashed in Poland, hunting churches. I think the Christians there would relate to the Christians in Damascus. If if we're going to appreciate this story, which again is told three times, so God has great intentions, I think, for the conversion of Paul for us. It's supposed to shape our faith. Not only is it repeated in Acts three times, Paul retells it himself repeatedly in the epistles. I don't think that's there just for our historical Bible test, that we can pass it saying who was Paul and where was he converted. I think it's supposed to impact our faith. It's supposed to be a, something of a, of a prototype. It talks about Paul the apostle, but it also talks about the fundamental nature of the gospel and its power. Paul was, in essence, a platform for God to display the power of the gospel. That's, in essence, what happens in this story. And you know, because you're well taught here, how much God loves irony. And this story is just one big circle of progressive irony that leads ultimately back to the same place it began, but with the opposite result. 
And so it progresses, one paragraph to another, more and more ironic things happening. But if we're going to appreciate the power displayed here, we have to get into the mindset of an ordinary Christian in Damascus. So so try to imagine you're just an ordinary Christian family in Damascus. You come to a church gathering like this. An evangelist that came from Jerusalem preached the gospel to you. You were converted in the name of Jesus. But now you hear that this great leader of the Jerusalem church, Stephen, has been martyred. And a man who stood there witnessing to his death is now coming to your town with written authority from the religious leaders in Jerusalem to drag as many of you as he can back to Jerusalem to face trial and potential death. He is a church hunter. He was like Yager. He was coming. And he was coming with your name in mind. He had written documents that said, I have the right to walk in here, drag them to prison, take them to Jerusalem to face trial. He was coming. The church hunter was coming to Damascus. That's who this man was. He was not the eventual Apostle Paul yet. He was not the man who wrote with affection and love to the churches yet. We have to enter back into the story if we're going to feel the power of it. We can't sort of fast forward and think, well, isn't that a wonderful story about his conversion? I can't wait to talk about Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles. No, he wasn't the apostle to the Gentiles yet. He was the church hunter. He was a beast intent on destroying the church, destroying families, and destroying Christianity. He hated Jesus Christ, and he hated those who followed him. And he was coming up the road towards this little church in Damascus, his mission, destruction, and death. That's the background. That's the the, the beginning point of this story. So the question for the story is, how powerful is the gospel of Jesus Christ? How powerful is Jesus Christ through his gospel? What is God able to do? What is Jesus able to do? And it's an important question for us to ask. Because if if you're like me and you've been in the church any number of years and you're familiar with the gospel story and you know the good news that Jesus paid it all, it's important to get back into our our, our memories. Okay, how, how powerful is the gospel? Is it a nice comforting story that we tell ourselves when we sin so we don't feel bad, too bad about how, how much we sin? Is is that what the gospel is? It's comforting for me when I have those moments of impatience with my children or a little bit angry at my spouse or I looked somewhere I shouldn't have or maybe I I looked the other way when my taxes came back and they weren't quite honest and the gospel comes in to remind me, but Jesus paid for those things. Is that what the gospel is? Yes, but is that all that it is? Is that all that it is? There's something in this story that's supposed to expand our view of the power of the gospel. Let's walk through the irony of this story, and then we'll apply it uh, to our situation uh, today and this morning. First of all, a few movements in the story. I'm just going to break them into three just to walk through it. First of all, the converted enemy. The converted enemy is essentially what we see happening from the first part of the chapter all the way down until Paul starts preaching in Damascus. So this opening story has Paul marching to Damascus and this enemy of God is suddenly confronted with a blinding light from heaven. It appears that the risen Christ 
physically appeared before him in such a way that he could see him. And it's important to remember, this is not apocalyptic literature. This isn't sort of a thought about Jesus. This is actually Jesus standing in the road to Damascus, knocks Paul off of his horse and begins speaking to him, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Of course, any church facing a hostile culture should be comforted that Jesus personally identifies with his vulnerable sheep. Why are you persecuting me? Now, Saul was a good Pharisee. He would have expected a messianic figure with divine support, but not divine power. He would have expected there's going to be a David figure that's going to come and renew the people of Israel. So he was expecting that. What he was not expecting was that this man-like figure would stand before him. And then even worse news, he announces himself to be none other than Jesus of Nazareth that Paul is persecuting. So the Messiah that Paul would have been trained to anticipate is none other than the man who died on the cross that Stephen proclaimed, the one that Paul was stood there while he was being beaten to death with stones. And this is this clearly divine figure standing in front of Paul. This is the, the most condemnable news possible. This self-righteous Jew finds himself at cross purposes with Yahweh and Yahweh has revealed himself in the person of Jesus Christ, the crucified one. There could not be, for a student of Paul, there could not be worse news than what Jesus says in verse 5, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. All of a sudden, instead of being on Moses' side and with God, Paul is revealed to be against Moses and against God and deserving of annihilation. He's told to go into Damascus. You will be told what you are to do. So the irony begins. This confident, empowered church hunter meets the real authority of the risen Christ who is the crucified one shown to be God's perfect and glorious Messiah and he's told like a child, go into the city and then I'll tell you what to do. We're supposed to feel the irony, the, the reversal of that. Imagine, I think, I think modern day soldier marching to Damascus with his band, all the authority and confidence and self-righteous zeal. And then he's told, just go to the city and wait. And you can't even see. You feel the ironic reversal of that? How powerful is the gospel? How powerful is the Savior? That's the point we're supposed to begin feeling. Well, it's so powerful that Saul himself is knocked off his horse, is told he has it totally wrong about God and his purposes in the world, and he's not allowed to see anything. He has to be led by the hand into Damascus, and he's told to wait, and you'll be told what to do. The early church would have... This was a hero story, and the hero was that shining figure on the road. This was one of those stories you tell the children and they think, the great terrible boogeyman was knocked off his horse. He couldn't even see and he had to be walked into the city and told, sit down and I'll tell you what to do. I mean, there's a sense of this amazing power. Second half of this story finds this ordinary disciple that we don't know anything else about named Ananias. And we love that he's ordinary because we can just identify with him and with his understandable doubts. He's told, go and find this man called Saul. He is praying 
and I've called you to lay your hands on him. You notice that in verse 11, and he will restore his sight. Ananias is understandably reluctant, as you would have been if you were in Poland and the church hunter was coming. Imagine if you got this word. Go to this house. August Yager is there and pray for him so that he can see again. He's respectful, at least, but Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem, and here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine. So Ananias goes to the house. He lays his hands on Saul. He is restored to his sight. He is apparently filled with the Holy Spirit. That was Ananias' prayer. Immediately, he rises. He is baptized. Important to see the reversal that has taken place. What has taken place? Paul has been converted and commissioned. The enemy, by the end of verse 18, is baptized. That would be a public declaration that he is willing to identify with the very one he was going to persecute. He is publicly declaring himself to belong to Jesus And more than that, he is called to proclaim Jesus. And more than that, he is called to suffer for Jesus. We have to feel the ironic reversal. We we won't get the point of of any of the stories of Acts if we think of it as just theological descriptions of the past. We're supposed to feel the emotion of this reversal. Imagine Ananias. Imagine Ananias. Here he finds this humbled church hunter and he, he probably with trying to be bold before the Lord. He shares with him, I'm supposed to pray for you. And then God has called you. And so he prays for him. Paul immediately stands up, says, I want to be baptized. Can you take me to the water? I want to declare my allegiance to Jesus Christ. I, I don't think Ananias was ever the same after that. Can you imagine ever being the same? And he starts probably going to us. Do you, do you know who just got converted? We were all hiding. We're coming up with escape plans. We had to figure out a way to get out of the church quickly. What are we going to do? Will the men stand at the door? Will we get the ladies and children out? What are we going to do? No, no. He, he just was baptized. I was there. I watched him. He said, I believe in Jesus as the Messiah. Amazing. Incredible reversal. That's the point of this story. That's why it's told three times. The power of the gospel. It converts him not only to a believer in Jesus, but he's willing to So the persecutor becomes someone who's called to suffer for the name of Jesus. The reversal is incredible. Converted enemy becomes a suffering witness. Second movement, a suffering witness. This this is just the fulfillment of God's prediction through Ananias. It's just the second movement. It's shown to be immediately true. The irony, oh, the irony continues. You gotta love, God loves irony. Because it reveals the foolishness of men's wisdom. I think that's why there's so much irony in the Bible. It reveals the foolishness of men's wisdom. Nobody could make this up. Nobody could plan this. God's wisdom is displayed here. Okay, who, what would be the greatest display of glory for the expansion of the gospel around the world? Well, what we'll do is we'll choose the greatest persecutor of the church, turn him into the apostle to the Gentiles, and he'll preach the gospel from Illyricum all the way around to Rome. How about that? That would display the power of the gospel. Won't be a nice little Jewish boy that grew up in the synagogue, believed in Jesus, came to church every week, and then he's going to go and, and talk about Jesus as the Messiah. No, it's the church hunter that becomes the church planter. Amen. That's what the gospel can do. 
so he begins preaching. I mean, feel the humor of this. They had to be laughing in heaven when this is happening. After some days, he was with the disciples. So he took a couple days to maybe learn a few verses. And immediately, he proclaims Jesus in the synagogue saying, He, 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 he. Think about that theologically. The crucified one, the one cursed on a, by hanging on a tree, the lamb led to the slaughter, the one under God's judgment. He is the son of God, says Paul. And all who heard him, understatement of the passage, were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And didn't he come here to bring them bound before the chief priests? But, irony continues, Saul increases all the more in strength and confounds the Jews who live in Damascus by proving that Jesus, the man Jesus, was the Christ. Now feel the irony continue. The suffering witness, the prophecies fulfilled. The Jews, after many days, they plot to kill him. You see the reversal? Paul's going to bind people, take them so they can have Stephen's end, and now they're like, we, we have to kill this guy. I mean, if this story gets out that he's converted, well, anything could happen. I mean, it could go to the whole world. That would be the end of it. I mean, if Paul can preach Jesus... Well, then we can't convince anybody to not believe in this anymore. So they said, we have to kill this guy. We have to kill Paul. So the church hunter is now hunted. They're watching the gates day and night in order to kill Day and night! They're watching the gates to kill him. And this great, powerful, authoritative representative of the highest authorities, religious authorities in the land, has to be stuffed into a basket and lowered from a wall. Now, later on in his life, Paul references this experience, which he had at least once, maybe twice, as being perhaps the most humanly humiliating thing that ever happened to him. He's a grown man, dignified scribe and scholar, sat at the feet of Gamaliel. They find a basket big enough for him. They stuff him into it. They tie it with ropes, and they lower him over the wall in a basket. See the contrast? Here he comes on his horse, riding to Damascus. And now he's shoved into this basket, probably rugs covering over him, and they lower him out the wall. Did he make, is the rope long enough? Did he make it? I mean, you're supposed to feel like the, the child, like, this is so humiliating, humanly speaking. He gets away. He goes to Jerusalem. They are understandably doubtful. Surely this is a trick. But Barnabas, encouraging Barnabas, always full of faith, takes him and brings him to the apostles, tells him it's really true. He really did preach Jesus in Damascus. So they apparently accept him. And then he does the same thing in Jerusalem. And more irony, he speaks in disputes with the Hellenists. That was the group that was angry at Stephen that led to his persecution. That, that Paul was there when Stephen was martyred and Stephen said, hold not this sin against them. That, that was the Hellenists that Stephen was working. So Paul now, the leader of Stephen's martyrdom is disputing against the Hellenists, proclaiming Jesus, and again they're seeking to kill him. And so when the brothers learn this, they bring him down to Caesarea and send him off to Tarsus. So, so the passage begins with Paul hunting churches. It ends with them seeking to kill him in such a way that he's now a refugee for the gospel. The church hunter is now a refugee for the gospel. How? 
Only the Savior can turn a church hunter into a refugee for the sake of his name. That's how powerful the gospel is. Final section of the story. It's kind of a summation section. It completes the irony, the growing church. So we have the converted enemy, and then the second section, the suffering witness, and then the growing church. It says, so, what's the result? What's the conclusion? What, what's the conclusion of everything that happened beginning in verse 1? What, 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 what ended up happening? Well, what you would have thought would ended up happening is the church was living in fear and hiding while many of their dear leaders was dragged to Jerusalem and put in prison. That would be the expected conclusion. But instead, here's the conclusion. So, what's the result of this? The church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had what? Peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. What happened to them? They multiplied. That's not just like a nice little verse about this cute little church in Damascus and Jerusalem. And wasn't it great they're growing? And it was peaceful and they had potlucks. It was just a wonderful time together. No, it's, it's supposed to be a declaration of the difference the gospel makes in the most impossible circumstances. What happened when Paul started on the road to kill the church? What happened? Well, somehow he encountered Jesus. And then at the other side of that, the church had peace. It was built up. It multiplied. And it enjoyed the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. What, what is in the middle of that equation? You know, like when you're a kid and they had the, like, the box. If two goes into this box, it becomes four. What happens in the box? Remember those little things? That's like what happens with the gospel. Paul, the church hunter, comes to Damascus. He met Jesus, and somehow on the other end of it, the church was built up and multiplied, lived in the fear of the Lord and peace. What can the gospel do? It's remarkable. It can change a persecutor into a planter. It can change a hater into a witness. It can change an enemy into a suffering, loyal, faithful follower of Jesus Christ. And the church, as is always true in Acts, can expect that the very things that seek to oppose it will turn into its blessing through the power of the gospel. Because of the sovereignty of God, the very things that try to destroy the church will be used of God to build up the church and communicate His protection and blessing to it. So when we look around and we see there's a church hunter coming for us or a church hunting culture coming for us, we can say, we already know the end of that equation. You'd be better to stay home. The harder you work against the church will actually do the opposite and the church will grow because of the power of Jesus Christ. God can turn his worst enemy into a witness for his gospel. God can turn his worst enemy into a witness for his gospel. The power of the gospel is unlimited and particularly displayed in those that, humanly speaking, would seem least likely to be converted. The less strength we have, the less likely it is that someone would turn to the Lord, the more God delights to show the power of the risen Christ turning someone towards him who never would have done that on their own. How do we display this? How do we apply this today? This all-powerful Savior and his message 
that can convert Paul. Now, Paul obviously was unique in many ways. He was the apostle of the Gentiles. He planted churches. He spoke with biblical authority. So obviously unique. But it's not just revealing to the church the importance of Paul. That's not the only reason these stories are there. It's also as a, a personal display, a personal platform for the same gospel that's at work today. That's why I think his testimony is repeated again and again and again throughout the scriptures. Because it's supposed to encourage us that the same gospel and Savior that encountered Paul encounters us. The same message he proclaimed, we proclaim. The same sovereign power that can overrule enemies that did that with him does that with us. We're supposed to apply this same kind of Paul conversion power gospel into our daily lives. All right, three applications. How do we apply this good news about this gospel? First of all, we should stay close to the miracle of our salvation. We should stay close to the miracle of our salvation. All of us, all of us should see in Paul a prototype of what happened to all of us. Now, we're not all church hunters, but we were all God-haters. And God met us on the road. Paul never forgot this. He never forgot his moment on the road. He never forgot it. In 1 Timothy, towards the end of his ministry, he says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy Because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into this world to save sinners. Of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason. That in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience. As an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Shouldn't we all be able to say that in our own way with our own story? Shouldn't we all be able to go back to that spot and say, I, I know that I was running from God and I encountered Jesus Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit and he turned me in the opposite direction. That's the only explanation that I believe in him today. We need to go back to that spot. We need the, the tender gratefulness to still grip our hearts. Now, now, we're a family of churches, and we, we have great phrases like preach the gospel to yourself every day, stay close to the gospel, keep the main thing the main thing. We have these wonderful phrases, but they can't just be phrases. They've got to be experiences on Wednesday morning and Friday night and Thursday afternoon. They've got to be fresh moments of going back to that spot. They can't just be our cliches. They've got to be our heartbeat. George Whitfield said... I know the place. I know the place. Whenever I go to Oxford, I cannot help running to the spot where Jesus Christ first revealed himself to me and gave me the new birth. Now, if you grew up in the church like me, you might not even have a spot or even a moment that you can identify. But all of us ultimately go to the same spot. We all go to that spot where Jesus died for our sins. 
where, where he hung for our sins. And whether, whether we're just like Paul and this belligerent blasphemer or we this nice little hypocritical church kid, we all went to the same spot and looked at Jesus and said, that's the only way I can get into heaven. Him dying for me and the ability to see Jesus in his glory while hanging on the cross, that's a sight that only God can give every Christian. So we all go to that same spot and all of us should be like Whitfield said, I I can go to this spot and we need to go to the spot every day. Go to the spot every day. Every day, go to the spot and let the tenderness of the miracle of your salvation keep close. We need to stay close to the miracle of our salvation. Not, Not far away. Close. Not a cliche. Not something we hope new people get close. Stay close to the miracle of your salvation. Application number two, have hope for the worst sinners you know. I think that's part of the reason that Paul's story is told so often. Because if Paul can be converted, if the church hunter can become Paul, There's no allowances for doubting that God can save anybody. We have to bring our doubt about people's likelihood of conversion to this Damascus road and let this story obliterate them. Think about who that is for you. Maybe a parent that has been confident and their own righteousness for their whole life. And it seems impossible that they would ever admit they need grace. Maybe it's a child who ran away from God and from the teaching they received and is angry and loves the pleasures of this world and the idea of them singing about Jesus paying it all is impossible. Maybe it's a neighbor who's living a particular kind of lifestyle and you're aware that bringing the gospel to them means they're going to have to change that lifestyle and that seems impossible. It would mean their whole world turning upside down. And you know you can't do that. The good news is we don't have to. We can point them to the one who can. You may have heard the story about a man named Thorpe who was a contemporary of George Whitfield and hated him, hated his message, loved mocking him at least, thought he was hilarious and only worthy of derision. And as Charles Spurgeon tells the story, Mr. Thorpe was a member of what was called the Infidel Club. In those days, infidelity was more blasphemous than now. The Infidel Society took the name of the Hellfire Club. And among their amusements was that of holding imitations of religious services and exhibiting mimicries of popular ministers. Thorpe went to hear George Whitfield preach that he might caricature him before his profane associates. He listened to Whitfield so carefully that he caught his tones and his manner and somewhat of his doctrines. And when the Hellfire Club met to see his caricature of Whitfield, Thorpe opened the Bible that he might take a text to preach from it after the manner of Whitfield. And his eye fell on the passage, Except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. 
As he spoke upon that text, he was carried beyond himself, lost all thought of mockery, spoke as one in earnest, and was the means of his own conversion. Have hope for the worst sinner you know. Have hope for them. God gave us the story of Paul partially so you could have hope for the worst sinner you know. It's the same gospel, it's the same risen Christ. Final application. Study the advancing gospel until evangelism becomes a habit. Study the advancing gospel until evangelism becomes a habit. I've been taking a greater uh, responsibility in, in studying, noticing evangelism in the scriptures since founding the church in Round Rock. And one of the things I've noticed in the gospels and in Acts is how almost pervasively when someone encounters Jesus, they immediately, and it's recorded, that they desire to witness to him. Uh, it happens with the disciples. They, they meet Jesus, and then it says immediately, he went and got his brother and, and brought him to Jesus. And he, Jesus heals somebody. Immediately, he wanted to go tell the town. Half the time, Jesus says, don't do that yet. We've got to take time because I have to be crucified and we don't want this to become a political thing. So there's, there's silence and so forth in Mark and other gospels. But the impulse of the person is to share what they've received. And that's the same here. Paul's immediate impulse is to share what he's received. Now he's called to that and preaching and in that way in a way that we're not. But, but you got to feel the impulse. Encountering Jesus results in wanting to share who we've just met. That has been convicting for me because evangelism is easily procrastinating responsibility in my life. Easily procrastinated. I was reminded of what Mark Twain says, never put off till tomorrow what you can do the day after tomorrow just as well. (laughs) That's, That's kind of like how I think of evangelism and outreach to those that don't know the Lord. But I could easily do that the day after tomorrow. It's also true what P.T. Barnum says. Without promotion, something terrible happens. Nothing. Without evangelism, something terrible happens. Nothing. It's interesting to me that in the Bible, there's not a lot of direct commands to evangelize. There's a lot of direct commands to love one another, serve one another. Speak the truth to one another. Worship the Lord with gladness. A lot of direct commands. Not a lot of direct commands to evangelize. So apparently in the wisdom of God, the most effective way of getting his church to evangelize is to talk to them about the power of the gospel displayed in the gospels and in Acts. 
So unlike a lot of other commands, there are commands, but unlike those other commands, he, he, he apparently in his wisdom thinks they need to hear these stories about how powerful the gospel is, and those stories will drag them into the difficult, daunting, and somewhat procrastinatable calling of evangelism. So we need these stories. We have to study them. We have to immerse ourselves in them. We have to think about Paul and how terrible he was when he started his journey and how glorious it was at the end of his journey. And the more we think about that and seep in that and marinate in that and glory in that and worship the Lord for that, then we begin to want that to happen today. So study the advancing gospel until evangelism becomes a habit. Study Paul until evangelism becomes a habit. Glory in it. Find a joy in it. Desire the Lord Jesus to experience today this kind of miraculously ironic story with your neighbor and the person at the soccer game and the grocer who checks you out and your banker and the person next to you in the cubicle and next door, the guy who frowns at you because your grass is too long. Find find a way to enjoy and desire this same gospel to be displayed in their lives. I love what Jim Donahue, the pastor in Covenant Fellowship by Philadelphia, he says, include unbelievers in the habits you already have. Include unbelievers in the habits you already have. Go into the park, invite somebody. If you're sitting in a soccer game, talk to somebody. Include unbelievers in the habits you already have. At our church, we... Had a mantra a couple years ago that we, we like start conversations and build friendships. Very simple. Start conversations, build friendships. You can start a conversation anytime. But it's hard. I was sitting in the soccer game with my boys a couple weeks ago, a few, little while ago, and I'm sitting there and there's a dad over here. It's a first practice, and I just don't want to engage in conversation. I want to check my email, look at my phone, check out my boys, cheer them on, and go home. And I don't want to talk to this guy. <laughs> And he doesn't want to talk to me, apparently. <laughs> and I thought, yeah, but I'm probably supposed to talk to him. He's right here. We're going to be together the whole season. I've got to start somewhere. I don't really want to. I just want to look at my phone. I just want to talk to my boys. It's probably fatherly to keep focused on them. <laughs> Finally... Lord moved my sluggish heart and I just said hi introduced myself didn't go anywhere but I'll see him again seasons the rest of the fall and who knows start conversations build friendships you never know what God might do in opening a door for this gospel to turn a current enemy into a witness Brothers and sisters, the Lord can turn the church hunter into the man who said, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Let's enjoy the impossibly glorious power of Jesus Christ, the risen Savior, contained in the gospel message for our own souls, for our hope for those that are currently without him. And let it motivate us to start that conversation 
that might lead to somebody else's moment on the road. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I want to take a moment and thank you for this dear church. I pray, Lord, that the joy of our salvation in you would always characterize this church, that they would always be tender to the sight of Calvary, that they would always be thrilled at the prospect of a conversation about you. Bless all of us, Lord, with the reminder of the power of your gospel. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.